My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, returning to you with another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. You are in for a treat today, friends. Uh, <laughs> but before I get to the episode, which I do want to do very quickly, I'm going to give a shout out to some places I'm seeing some new listeners. Hello to my listeners in Spain and Mexico. Glad to have you with us. But more on the domestic side, I want to recognize my listeners in Pennsylvania. And while this is often a fairly anonymous interaction, I usually only see just the location where downloads come from. I had a particular fan in Pennsylvania reach out. So hello to Cassidy, who is on the administrative team of the State Theater of Johnstown in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Cassidy is apparently an avid fan of the show and reached out asking about Trident's annual production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and how to keep it current as the original work gets older and older. In any case, a great conversation was started, and I look forward to continuing that conversation. So Cassidy reached out via the Contact Us form on the Trident Theater website. That's just one way to keep in contact. You can also write to trident at tridenttheater.com or connect with the Trident Theater or Euripides Humanities pages on Instagram. But speaking of being contacted, the other day I was connected with award-winning playwright Jack Canfora, who is the artistic director of New Normal Rep Theater Company based in New York City, a completely online theater production company. Isn't that wild? <laughs> Jack and a few friends created New Normal Rep as stated in a quote from the company's website. New Normal Rep exists today, not in spite of of the pandemic that swept the world in 2020, but because of it. In a call to continue theatrical content being available during the difficulty of the COVID pandemic, New Normal Rep sought to create something new and beneficial to the theater world as a whole. A theater company that produces solely virtual content, and as we'll hear in the episode in just a moment, it's not meant to replace theater, but to keep it going through a tough time. And then some. I'll have some links to New Normal Rep's content, including exclusive access to Jack's full-length play, Jericho, which was directed by award-winning legendary actor Marsha Mason. I mean, are you kidding me? How cool is that? Ah, okay, anyway, just go check that stuff out. It'll all be in the show notes. But anyway, after meeting with Jack and really hitting it off, I came up with a great topic for us to discuss, and we talked so long about this topic that I've actually had to cut this into two episodes. So... You'll get part one today and part two in two weeks. 
Without further ado, here is part one of To Stream or Not To Stream. So, Jack, I, I got to tell you, the other day I started listening to uh, your podcast, Step Nine. And for mm -hmm. anybody out there, this is I think this is available wherever you can get your podcast, right? Yeah, all your favorite podcast platforms and also ones that you, you don't even like. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Step Nine, I'm not going to give away too much of the plot, but um, uh, this is such a great example to me of what it seems like new normal rep, your theater company is all about, you know, it is engaging audiences and theatrical experiences without actually having to go somewhere else to do it. Right. You can do it from the comfort of anywhere you are, frankly. Um, but man, that's step nine. That's some heavy stuff, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely a drama. First of all, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to it. And, um, uh, um, you know, I mean, well, in writing it, um, you know, there are a lot of things going on, but what I, one of the things I wanted to do is because it's a very heavy subject matter. Um, and, and just, in a in a nutshell, it's about a woman who was, uh, when she was a young woman in college, she was, she was raped. And, um, this was about 30 years ago and she didn't get any, anywhere with it in terms of pursuing justice, uh, which is, you know, very often the case and certainly the case back then. And about 30 years later, um, her rapist, uh, in going through the 12 steps of uh, recovery, uh, sent a letter to her to make amends, apologizing. Ooh. And it just, <laughs> and it just throws all these things in her face, um, that she thought she had buried deeply, although, People around her aren't so sure that she ever had it buried that deeply, and so it's and that's based oh, actually on something that really happened. And I Ooh. I didn't, yeah, and I did not follow the story much after that because I said I don't want to, I don't want to know anymore. That's just such a great premise, yeah. my, which sounds maybe insensitive. Yeah. But I mean, um, because it brings up all sorts of moral dilemmas. And but you know, having said that, I I wanted to make hopefully it's entertaining and funny too it's not all you know dirge like oh um, yeah no 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 no. I, I there were some laugh out loud moments i had through that <laughs> yeah because you know because i think you know it, it is in a way it's hard to get a good elevator pitch you know uh yeah. about that because it does sound on, on the surface of it i mean because you're right it is heavy it does deal with heavy stuff but i think hopefully it deals with it in a um in a way that is both respectful but also entertaining um we're very proud of the cast and in uh, the production of it. Um, and to speak to your point, it is absolutely what my online theater company, New Normal Rep, is about, which is yeah, you know, offering theatrical um, experiences. This is really like a radio play, yes, um, for little or no money. In this case, no money. Um, and because we're trying to democratize theater, and I think that theater isn't really on the radar of a lot of. Americans and a lot of people around the world because of mm -hmm. two main issues. One is geography and one is, is cost and um, uh, yeah. technology we have now, um, you know, we did a season of four video productions on online productions um, that were catered specifically to the online uh, aesthetic. Um, and we did this radio production here, um, you know, uh, for a uh, you know, podcast form. Um, it, you know, you don't, for the, you don't need to spend much money. And in fact, for step nine, you don't need to spend any money and it's available to you as long as you have internet, which is most people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Um, and we're very proud of it. You know, some, we get some pretty high quality work. We try and hold ourselves to a high standard. We've been very lucky to work with a lot of not only very, you know, big names, but also some really um, 
talented people like Jill Eikenberry, who was a Golden Globe winner. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, she's wonderful in this. And um, Jericho, which is the first uh, play we did, uh, the v- full video production back last season. And Oh, man, yeah, I watched like the first 20 minutes of that or so. And that was so interesting. Like, if I can describe it, 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 it was yeah, kind of like theater in a Zoom environment. Which, right. Right. which you know, I mean you as the as the audience member are just sitting there and consuming it and you're seeing visual representation but you can also juxtapose that and put it into these people might actually be in the same room talking to each other yeah exactly which is fantastic yeah, that, yeah well that thank you thank you so much and actually uh, myself and really a lot of the credit goes to Marsha Mason who uh, directed the play which oh my a- god that's huge <laughs> it was super huge and and, I, and, I, and as a playwright and I don't want to give the impression that NNR, New Normal Up, does just my plays. We do a lot of other plays. These just happen to be the two we're talking about yeah. uh, because I'm a narcissist. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, it, for me, it was a thrill of a lifetime for Marsha Mason, who was, you know, Neil Simon's, you know, wife and also oh. mutants for so many years, for her to tell me that, that she loved the script and she also thought it was very funny. And, you know, for me, oh. that, <laughs> yeah. And so... That was that's you know I'm going to be taking that uh, to you know, to uh, the rest of my life and uh, being insufferable with it. Um, I I have done the same on a few other occasions. Yeah, <laughs> what's the point of doing theater if you can't be insufferable at times? Uh, she's uh, so yeah. So she and I, and I really talked about it because she said I don't know I've never done this. I mean she's a great director and a renowned director, but she said I've never directed this. And I said, mm-hmm. well, we'll you know, figure it out together. And I say that together, but really she was the one that did a lot of the heavy lifting. We came up with something that I think works. And people have said that it's like being in the room with them in a lot of yes, ways. Yes, I agree. In a weird way, it's more intimate than any other form that they've seen. And it's, and it's fun, but also, I mean, it, it demands you sort of stay, you know, focused in, in a way it pulls you in. Right. So we're very happy with it. And as a writer, I'm happy with the way just like real theater, it sort of, you know, really sets a lot of uh, at stake by a language, you know, right. and where mm-hmm. TV and stuff, language is important, but it's, it's in the service of, a you know, uh, telling a story in pictures, whereas this is still. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, it's, it's, it's secondary to the visual in a way right. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. What I appreciated about it was it did still give that kind of fly on the wall feeling, you know, mm. of being in a traditional theater where you're with a yeah. whole group of people, but you're watching these illicit events happen on stage. But this right. one, at some point, there was a comedian who I've watched in tons of stuff before, and she did a Netflix comedy special in her parents' living room for only her parents. Oh, is it? oh, I love her. Um, uh, Mar- Maria Bamford. Yeah. <laughs> And I went, that's how, how amazing would that be if you got to be the person who got the opportunity to have uh, Hugh Jackman do Music Man just for you, you know? <laughs> so your theater gives the opportunity for people to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing, uh, you know, uh, full disclosure, we do not have Hugh Jackman, but um, ah. although we had, you know, we had Jimmy Smith in a play, uh, in another play in ours. So we've been very lucky. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. By uh, called Two Sisters and a Piano. We had him and Daphne Rubin uh, Vega and oh man, many other uh, people. It was a play by Nilo Cruz, who won the Pulitzer Prize, and he directed it too. Actually, so we were very uh, fortunate. 
Yeah, but we're very excited with the medium. And now and this, you know, again, we don't think this is going to replace theater. We don't want it to replace theater. We we like theater. I mean, the the, the lame analogy I always use is. Uh, when baseball started getting uh, broadcast to ra on radio stations and then on TV, owners were very nervous about it. They said, well, why will why would people come to the ballpark if they can listen to it? And in fact, attendance went through the roof because it was just exposing people yes. to in a way that people hadn't hadn't seen it before. And I think that's it. That's, that's why I think theater isn't even on the radar for most people. Yeah, um, really dramatic yeah. theater. When you think of theater, you think of musicals, which is which is fine. Musicals are wonderful, but like uh -huh. dramatic play or you know a comedy, they don't. It's just not on their radar because they've never really had the chance to look to watch it. This hopefully gets this out there to as many people as possible, and then uh -huh. so we really believe in that as a as a goal. I, I love all that work, and you know when I chatted with you the other day, I thought of a few things we could talk about. And I think it's incredibly timely that you and I have connected at this point because uh, the topic we're going to talk about, we could have just actually, you know, gotten into that conversation very organically with where we just were. <laughs> okay. Ripped from today's headline. So I've had producer Richard Jordan on the show a few times before, and it's kind of fun to have him because he's he's very, very knowledgeable about the business side of show business. And he's, right. he's you know, he's pretty much an expert on musicals and, and all kinds of stuff. But he's gotten me a, a little bit more of a keener interest on the business side of things and why business decisions are made. So when we talk about theater production, mm. generally a playwright either self-publishes or grants or works to a publishing house, which then negotiates contracts with playhouses or production companies, right? For royalties in order to perform it. In fact, there is often a clause in the royalty contract that stipulates no photography or videography of performance while the play is in production. Mm -hmm. Usually though, at least one performance is recorded for archival purposes only, but not for greater general consumption because the business idea is to try to get people to go to the theater to see it. I, I, I'm assuming you're agreeing with me on this. Yes. Yeah, okay. Those are the facts as I understand them, counselor. <laughs> so March 13th, 2020, mm. we have this lovely little COVID thing. And it's I don't think that there is any kind of ironic fate in that at all, that it was Friday the 13th. Mm. So, yeah, COVID hits. Theaters shut down everywhere, not just in America, all over Europe, all over the world. Mm -hmm. The only place that really didn't do it, uh, from what I understand, is South Korea. <laughs> but they looked at it ahead of time and went, okay, we're going to over-educate everybody. We're going to over-tell uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And whenever mm -hmm. anybody comes – yeah, I mean, they, they had it so cold. It was ridiculous. So frankly put, and I'm assuming you're going to feel the same way, it was terrifying. Yeah. To get regular work in the theater without a global pandemic is wonderful, but there is always that possibility that the next show won't come along. Basically, it's this. You're unemployed until you get a job, and that job yeah. is only going to last a certain number of weeks or months, and unless you have something lined up by the time the contract ends, you're unemployed again. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, you know what? That's almost like a best-case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And of course, that can really only happen in major markets. But like you were saying, even in a major market, in a major city, you know, you have actors who get consistent work. It doesn't always pay their bills. No, and I, I, I can speak out of personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was putting this episode together, or at least writing the script for it, I was mm -hmm. listening to 
I may have mentioned it on the show before, but my favorite band of all time is Nine Inch Nails. And I am, I, I love their more recent work. Yeah, the classic stuff is great, but their more recent work where they're figuring out and they're evolving and they're winning Oscars for film scores and, and everything. March 26th, 2020, Trent Reznor released a double album of instrumental music to follow up from an amazing album he did about uh, 15, 20 years ago called Ghosts, Ghosts 1 through 4. And it was like a suite. Now he did 4 and 5, or 5 and 6 rather. Mm -hmm. And it was all completely born out of this huge miasma of different emotions approaching a global lockdown. Mm -hmm. And I've often said that that guy is such a lab rat that he is basically a minister of sound. Like he can take <laughs> an emotional atmosphere and mm. create exactly the sound to go along with it. Mm. So as I'm listening to this, uh, as I'm writing this episode about theater in the pandemic and where we go from here, this was a, a this was a quote they had on their website. As the news seems to turn ever more grim by the hour, we found ourselves vacillating wildly between feeling like there may be hope at times to utter despair, often changing minute to minute. Although each of us define ourselves as antisocial types who prefer being on our own, this situation has really made us appreciate the power and need for, in all caps, connection. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you just described my Tuesday, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. So to keep things going in the theater world, many theaters opted for streaming content mm -hmm. and let loose their archives as well. So all that stuff that they were recording for archival purposes, you have a lot of them going, okay, let's cherry pick some of the best stuff just to keep people interested. It was either for free or they'd throw it on their YouTube page or they'd have uh, streaming events where, you know, you'd buy a ticket, etc. Many of them actually released their works to streaming platforms like Broadway HD, which has mm -hmm. monthly or annual subscription plans. So if you're interested in something like that, they've got a great library of, of big shows that you might never have been able to see if you couldn't make it to New York or London or Chicago or Kennedy Center or yeah, something like that. Yeah. However, most theaters didn't have the time or budget to invest in a multi-camera system, which would be ideal for filming stage plays for at-home at consumption. So they did their best with the one or two camera angles they had. And, and you and I talked about this the other day. Yeah. Watching a video of a play versus watching it in person. And, and, mm. and sometime, somehow, even though when you buy a theater ticket, you usually sit in one seat and watch the entire show from that one seat. Somehow watching it on a screen from only one perspective becomes incredibly dull. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think they've gotten actually a lot better at that. But there's nothing like being in a theater because the theater is, um, I'm going to use my fancy word here, the theater is dialectical. Um, yes. But, you know, it's a conversation between the, the cast and the audience and the playwright and the audience. And the cast palpably feeds off the audience and responds. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a feedback loop. Right. Whereas, you know, film isn't that way, but film is great in its own way and has mastered the craft of visual storytelling. But theater is, so you're watching something that is designed to be, and on a certain level, a dialogue, but the dialogue part's taken out now. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was about two years ago. I directed a radio play version of Hitchcock's at 39 steps mm. and it, it did have an in-person audience. But we made it for a streaming audience as well. It was and 138 steps. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
but that was one of those very innovative ways that like an, an, an old genre kind of came back and found a new right. life again. Right. Very similar to the way like step nine is doing mm. well. I mean, I'll be honest with you, the interplay with the characters and the characters mm. are so rich. And, and the thing about it was the, the production value of it was so well done. You know, I can hear footsteps on linoleum. I can hear uh, uh, coffee cups hitting saucers in, in cafes and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it put you as the listener in the middle of it. And, you know, there's always that, that great old line, like the book is better than the movie, you yeah, know, because yeah. right. you're inventing these people. And then when you get to the movie, you go, oh, she didn't look like that. You know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, getting back to theater and the pandemic. Yeah. And not, not knowing how long the closures would last, many theaters and groups started to innovate about how they could one, get their planned content to patrons and two, how to keep their people in work. I mean, it's a simple formula, right? If no one's buying tickets, the people making the content aren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we can rely on donations just so long, but you got to get people swinging those doors again. Absolutely. So uh, this became kind of difficult for a few reasons. There were copyright issues about who could watch the content and where. Yeah. So along with these copyright issues, uh, another thing is you did still have to get permission from from your playwright and there were a lot of big name playwrights who already had made their money that they could honestly say i will give permission for free to do my works one of them was john patrick shanley you know who wrote doubt yes and i mean this is a quote directly from him i give blanket permission for any and all requests to live stream my plays to be granted as opposed by case to case yeah that's that's a guy who gets the nature of and point of theater. You know? Right. And and it wasn't like he was, you know, digging his own grave and saying, well, I've lived my life. Go ahead and, <laughs> and do my plays unto perpetuity, because hmm. I think we all saw that COVID was going to end. It still hmm. hasn't really. And, and this is always something that has kind of interested me as well, as far as copyright is concerned. And especially as it relates to now everybody's fighting for audience and streaming. Well, generally larger companies could beat out smaller companies if they wanted to do a show. Sure, of course. I mean, honestly, when when a smaller market company uh, applies for royalties, there has to not be another production of a bigger company coming through within like 200 miles of it. Which, you know, I taught high school for a while and directed some high school plays. That was really hard because they wouldn't let you do high school plays if there was anything on off-Broadway or Broadway that was the same. You're right. I mean, what person in their right mind would think, well, uh, you know, I could go see Arthur Miller's Crucible starring Liam Neeson and Laura Linney, <laughs> or I could go to the local high school and watch 10th graders do it. Um, so <laughs> I think I'll get roughly the same experience, uh, and, I'll, and it'll right. be less of a I mean, it's, it's right. ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. It's a ridiculous model. Um, I'll spend $5 on that local production and have access to the work, whereas right. I could spend $3,500 on plane tickets and <laughs> lodging and restaurants right. and right. tickets alone mm-hmm. to go see that amazing production. Ah, yeah. hmm. The scales yeah. are even. No, they're right. not. <laughs> but coming back to the issue of producing streaming theater in the pandemic, there was that little issue of a problem of jurisdiction between the acting unions for my listeners. This might be kind of muddy water. So I'll, I'll try to clear it up a little bit. Here's an example. So if a theater company 
that usually only has like 500 seats per night now has the streaming bandwidth for 20,000 people per performance, the theaters, the producers, and investors have the potential to make much more money than they originally intended to. In theory. In theory. Yeah, in theory. So this is kind of why the unions exist. If the people on top are making that much money, then the contracted workers below who have already signed their contracts are only getting paid a certain wage. There you have a difficult shift in the balance of power as far as show business is concerned. So you have these two unions. Uh, you have the Stage Actors Union, which is known as Actors Equity Association, which we'll, we, you and I would probably refer to as equity. Yeah, because we're, we're on the inside. Cool. We're on the inside. We know that. Oh, the Eck. Yeah, it's the yeah. act. Yeah. It's the act. Uh, then you have SAG-AFTRA, uh, which is was the merger of two bigger ones. It was the uh, Screen Actors Guild and the uh, Television Radio Union. Those two merged, and now they're SAG-AFTRA. So there was this debate that to anybody outside the picture would go, this is a simple solution, and you two each need to take your ball and go sit in the corner. Right. But you have the stage is going, okay, Film, you're going to be fine because you can get your content out anywhere. People need to come to us to see our content. And if they don't have the option of coming to us, then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. So in order to get our content out, we have to live stream it or we have to put make it available for streaming. Mm -hmm. To which SAG responded, well, that's not fair because anything filmed is our jurisdiction. Right. <sighs> it was, I mean, this was the dilemma we faced setting up. And and I and I will not try to posit myself as an expert on this at all because you know we had a general manager dealing with <laughs> a lot of this stuff and you know my so my knowledge of it is, is frankly tenuous more tenuous than maybe it should be for the artistic director of this company <laughs> but, but but also in 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 fairness to me darn it no one knew what they were, were was what was going on i mean sag after was feeling their way through it and actors equity for a long time would would i mean on their website would i think would literally post things well bear with us <laughs> and you know, yeah, it's hard to be angry in a certain sense because these all these are, were all things that were unprecedented. Yes. In the end, we went with a SAG after contract because they had mm -hmm. clear they had clear rules. But I'm going to say for you, Jack, that probably meant that if you had a specifically SAG after contract, then you could only hire specifically SAG after actors. Yes, that's true. And while that is on one hand somewhat limiting. I'm going to let the audience know, no, there are plenty of actors out there who are in both unions and there are plenty of really amazing, talented actors out there. So you weren't really shortchanged as far as uh, being able to pick great talent. No, because had we had gone with all equity, it was an equity contract, uh, which really didn't exist for what we were doing at the time. But had we gone with an equity contract, we would have had to use only equity actors. Right. And they are mainly gathered where you can be on stage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so both unions then came to an agreement on November 19th, 2020. So six months into this thing. Good Lord. So here's, here's, here's the quote. Equity now has jurisdiction over digital work that replaces a live stage show or whose digital audience supplements a live audience during the pandemic. Among the stipulations is that equity can't cover work that's created as TV or film, quote, including work that is shot out of chronological order that is substantially edited prior to exhibition or that includes visual effects or other elements that could not be replicated in a live manner, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> Clear as day. Gravity uh, <laughs> is a soul of wit, not very witty. Uh, but <laughs> actually the things... Those actually made sense. In other words, it's saying if you're doing something that's clearly meant to be a play, we'll let you do it. But you can't, 
you know, you can't do things that are essentially teleplays. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I actually found that to be, you know, forgive the language, an equitable uh, solution. <laughs> I mean, the fact that it took them half a year to get there because it seemed pretty intuitive. Because when, when you yeah. boil down, the language is basically saying, well, if you're going to do something that's done in the manner of a television show or meant clearly to be a TV or a movie, that's not fair. You can't, you know, we're not going to, you, you can't do that and then operate under our auspices. But you're going to do something yeah. that's clearly meant to be a play then you can. And basically they were, and then they were actually very generous in saying, you know, it's, it's a strange time. And so, you know, we're not yes. going to really get on anyone's case for at least another year. They basically, I think almost said that literally. And so, uh, yeah. And so that I think was, was, it's amazing to me that it took six months for them to get there, but eventually common sense prevailed. Right. And uh, right. we had gone with the SAG after contract and, we're, and we were happy to have done so. And all the actors in our company, you know, are professionals. And so they were all SAG after and equity. So to me, it was, we had that luxury of not thinking, well, we'll lose this actor if we go here or do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's kind of funny. I, I look at that wording in that they're like, you know, heavily edited, no special effects. Mm. I just brought this up to my boys the other day because they had never thought of something like this. I'm like, have you ever watched a Muppet where they have to go pick up a phone? <laughs> you know, the phone rings, Muppet walks over and picks up the phone. I said, this is where our brains have been trained to not watch for editing. Right. Because, right, right. because a puppet cannot actually, unless it's one of those Muppets that is, you know, like the Swedish chef has human hands or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they can't just actually go pick up a phone. So what you see mm -hmm. is a Muppet walks over, they put their hand on the phone, then you have a cut and you see them pick up the phone because the Muppet hand is glued to the phone, yeah. but it's from a yeah. different angle. So you just accept that. And then they hang it up and the same thing happens in reverse. Yeah. And, and my kids were like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, thank God, because otherwise the Muppets would have overtaken us long ago. I'll have to credit my former guest and musician, Michael Wyatt, for the phrase he said on my Calamity Jane episode. Nothing innovates like war and theater. <laughs> Which reminds me, if you'd like further proof, go listen to my episode, John Dennis's Thunder. But both New Normal Rep and Euripides Amenities seem to be something of kindred spirits, both born out of a crisis to continue a communication that, thanks to technology, could still continue despite not being in person. Again, links to New Normal Rep's Step 9 podcast and an exclusive link to Jack's Play Jericho is available in the show notes. Please give him a download or two, or several. But without further ado, let's get back to this episode. So, like you were saying, though, that SAG-AFTRA agreement was uh, originally supposed to end on December 31st, 2021, and then they looked at it and they went, okay, so things are starting to reopen, but, you know, we're still in the possibility with, like, Delta variant coming out and everything, and Omicron, mm -hmm. so they extended that through June 30th, 2022. So it was like, it was a really cool merger and a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. Well, how did live streaming through the pandemic do? Mm -hmm. Well, here's an interesting quote I found from the New York Times. If you are marshalling evidence that streaming theater can pay off, look no further than the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. 
which sold 35,000 tickets and grossed over $3 million during the pandemic from magic shows and other performances that could be watched at home. Well, who doesn't love magic? Right. But, you know, in, in our efforts to get off the ground, we had a very hard time getting reviewed. Mm. And um, we had, you know, a, a Broadway press agent, who, you know, a very well-respected one and who had a lot of contacts. And he was getting pushback saying, this isn't theater. Oh, and uh, we're we're not interested in covering it. We've done it as sort of a novelty, but like theater companies trying to do stuff. Unless you know, in in a couple of cases, you know, we had names. Marsha Mason directed the first play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winner directed the, Jimmy Smits and Daphne Rubin Vegas. So these are big names. Yeah, and then they're like, no, it's not theater. It's not theater. Got, oh, okay. I'm going to be coming back to that later. I promise you, but. Let's talk about some of the highlights here, okay? You have larger streaming platforms that started to release larger musicals like crazy, okay? Mm. Here's a quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda. It forever demolishes the idea that a beautifully shot version of your show diminishes the demand to see it live. Mm -hmm. In all of our estimations, it's only amplified the demand to see Hamilton live. Just yes. like you said. Just like you said. I mean... Mm. I watched a little bit of that version again the other day and I went very beautifully shot. This is mm. obviously, you know, from a company that has a lot of production value and can throw some money in it and go, nope, let's go back and take that scene again. But of course, that is a huge part of the commercial theater economy, tourism. Mm -hmm. So I think we said it on my episode about Patty Lapone. Uh, in Evita, my guest on that said, you know, Hamilton has really made theater more accessible to a lot of people. And you're mm -hmm. like, well, the show itself makes theater more relatable. I'll give you that. Yeah. But even the cheapest seats for Hamilton on Broadway at the Richards Rogers right now are just over $100 a seat. I know. And that's now. My daughter became obsessed with it. And I can't blame her. <laughs> I love it too. Um, mm -hmm. Like when Lynn Manuel, like, you know, she. <laughs> She said to me, like in July, one at some point, she said, "It's a terrible day." I said, "What's what's wrong?" I said, "Manuel Miranda, it's her last perform, it's last performance." And like, and she like sat shiva for like a week, you know, like because <laughs> Manuel Miranda was leaving the cast. Finally, I got her, and frankly, it was it was through a friend of mine who knew someone in the cast and said, "Okay, we can get you, you know, these, these seats." And, and but I still it cost me several hundred dollars and a yeah. couple of kidneys. And, you know, I had to track those down. And so it was hard, you know? Yeah. It was very yeah. Cr crazily expensive. But I really do believe, and I believe from the outset that, like I said earlier, it's, and I didn't know that quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda, but it just stands to reason that, you know, the baseball example to me. Yes. You know, you, if you show people, hey, this is a really great product, I think it's a very human thing to say, I'd love to see that. I'd love to be there with that, you know? So, um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me um, that that's the case. Oh, yeah. It also doesn't surprise me that the, that the producers and actors' equity were like, no, 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 you can't do it. Because I get on how it, on some level it's sort of unintuitive that well, for allowing it, uh, they'll, they'll be sated, but they won't be sated. Their appetites will be wetted. So that's yes. my wetted. Yes. That's absolutely what happened when I saw the footage of the revival of Oklahoma a couple of years ago. Yeah. Oh, I mean, one of your lead characters is in a wheelchair. Yeah. And everybody then went, how do we put people in wheelchairs on Broadway? Let's do this now. And you're like, yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Well, I mean, there's that great William Goldman quote about the movie industry, but I think it applies to most things in life. And his famous, 
know, great screenwriter, Princess Bride, all the President's Men, Butch Cassidy, Finance Kid, arguably the greatest screenwriter of all time. But he, you know, my favorite line of his ever is um, talking about the film business, and he said, "Nobody knows anything. <laughs> Nobody knows anything." No. Uh, and and you know, uh, they just want they find something that works, and they just want to repeat that and repeat that, and are convinced. Nothing else will work, and then something else works, and then they'll all gravitate towards that. And then they grab that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, here's another highlight that came out of COVID and streaming theater. Mm-hmm. The play Circle Jerk by Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Was it really? Yes. Well, well, it's relatable. <laughs> and, it, 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 and it combined live theater and live streaming into a new theatrical perspective, but gave credence to the use of live streaming for theatrical purposes. And pound for pound, in my opinion, I don't like to pay attention to uh, award shows. Like, I don't like to say the best picture was my favorite movie of the year. Uh, mm. You know, the Tony winner for best play was the best play that was out there last year. Like, no, yeah. it, it, things are individual. You can say you like something. Yeah, no, that's I agree. And that's why I've made a conscious choice to never uh, win any of those awards. Yeah, and there you go. Can, Good job. Good job. It's a political <laughs> statement. But I, I'll say this about the Pulitzer organization. Mm. I'll listen to that. If something wins a Pulitzer, I go, okay, I'm going to pay attention. You know why? Because sometimes they don't pick something. Right, right. They'll go a year going, no, none of you met the challenge. Nothing this year. Yeah. We'll try next year. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And and I think it's, it maintains, well, I mean, I mean, you'd like to think because so many of their prizes are, are for very serious uh, endeavors journalistically. And so I think that they're, you'd like to think it's less of a, I mean, there's no like, you know, they don't get Billy Crystal to host the Pulitzer uh, Prize Awards. There's no award. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they just announce it, and they're like, "This was the best play this year." It it, it um, frees them of a certain, you know, having some bells and whistles in a, in a, in a commercial enterprise. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the Obies are uh, just announced their awards. Those are the awards for Off Broadway, and um, yeah, they they also had categories for streaming, so they actually honor it as, as a separate category. Which, no kidding. Yeah. Which oh, I think that's is fantastic. Great. Yeah, which I think is great. And uh, again, they were really larger theaters that they were looking at, like theater companies that went into streaming as opposed to our little. Oh, I see. OK. Our little merry band of players, which create just, you know, we are an online theater company. Oh, as uh, to, like, theaters uh, that were doing going going into online ventures, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. OK. So it, it was kind of a kudos for picking up uh, a pseudo trend and in, in their eyes. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. OK. Well, OK. So in the latter half of 2021 and beyond, theaters started to open up again, despite new covid variants coming out every now and then and sparking new fears and further closures. But since reopening Broadway specifically has not had the massive success that it saw in 2019. But it's slowly building back and it's going to take a little time, but I don't think they quite have the structure figured out for it yet. And as we explored in episode 54, most audiences were showing up for on Broadway for well-known shows and gave some attention to new products, but not as much. They seem to want to be more comfortable spending their money on a product that they know that they'd enjoy. So, Jack, that's where we get to at this point in trying to determine... If streaming should continue or not. <laughs> well, I wonder what 
I wonder what position I'm going to take. Um, I have no idea. And let me let me just be completely fair with you. I will probably 100% agree with you. Right. But there are, I think, some things that we should consider and just have some ideas out there. And right. so I think I want to start with a pros and cons list on each side. Great. Okay. So let's talk about the pros of live theater. I mean – I think overall what we get out of that is a communal experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's, okay. that's 90% of theaters appeal to me. Oh my God. Uh, it, it, God, it's almost seven years ago now. My theater company Trident hosted a classic horror film series at our roadhouse, the YO, which has a huge screen, great sound and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people know it as kind of an entertainment hub. Mm-hmm. And, the first film in that series was psycho and we had, Oh God, it was so fun. Like uh, we stopped right in the middle. We had an intermission. People went out and got snacks and we had a a scream contest. (laughs) So we brought out a shower curtain. (laughs) I I dressed up some guy as mother and Mm -hmm. people would come up on stage and they'd stand behind the curtain and mother would rip open the curtain and they'd scream and the audience would vote on the best scream. And it was so fun. And I think, I think that uh, patron still has that uh, shower curtain in her shower because she she won it. <laughs> but, but one of my favorite things um, of that was after all that fun, we got to the second half of the show. And I'm not going to be spoiling the end for anybody who hasn't seen Psycho. And shame on you if you haven't seen Psycho. Mm. But there's a scene where uh, a detective is coming in trying to uh, figure out what's going on. And he walks up the stairs of the Bates house and it's a top down perspective. And you see him walking up and mother comes running out of a room at him. The entire house jumped and screamed. Like I'm sitting down there with one of my best friends and her husband is, is sitting right there and we all jumped and I did not expect this. And I look around at the rest of the house. And after that, they're all kind of laughing and pointing at each other and like, oh, that happened to you. It happened to me, too. Wow. We experienced that at the same time. Yeah. Communal experience. I mean, right. you know, you don't get much better than that. In fact, this is great. While there is a social benefit of being in the same room with other people and overall scratching the itch of social interaction, communally watching theater actually has the ability to synchronize biological rhythms. Really? A research team representing both University College of London and Lancaster University conducted an experiment in 2017. They do good work. Yeah. Oh, check this out. Quote, the team monitored the heart rates and electrodermal activity of 12 audience members at a live performance of the West End musical Dream Girls. (laughs) The team found... That as well as alongside individuals' emotional responses, the audience members' hearts were also responding in unison, with their pulses speeding up and slowing down at the same rate. End quote. Wow, that's I mean, if that's not a promotional poster, uh, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go off on a super slight but very related related tangent today. I was listening to an interview with Stephen Fry, who's this brilliant English actor and writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all brilliant to being tall and he's just wonderful. And um, <laughs> he, he cited, he talked about, you know, when you're, it's opening night, you know, in a, in a big show and you're in the wings, you know, and you're, you're nervous and the adrenaline is flowing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when you go out there and you do the show and then, you know, if it's a long run and I've had some experience of this when I was acting, like, you know, where I would do, do like be 50 performances of a place for schools or whatever. And by Oof. performance 19, you're chatting with the stage manager and you're like, hey, you know what? I'll, 
I'll be back in two minutes. Just got to go to the scene. And you, <laughs> right. and you come back. But here's what they have found out. They've done studies on this, that your heart rate and your blood pressure, that like an opening night was, you know, really uh, rising yes. and really in that moment, it has the same, it still goes to the same places physiologically, even though you're not nervous about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the neural and cardiovascular diverge at some point. Oh, wow. Isn't huh. that great? And like they did something that's, and of course, they're not comparable in terms of stakes or importance or what have you. But they also, years ago during World War II, they did a, a study of RAF pilots. And oh, whoa. Um, and what they wanted to know is, you know, because the first few times, obviously, I would think, I mean, I would be terrified every time, but, you know, you go up and you're just absolutely, you know, frightened and terrified. And yeah. the, the, the pilots who were good enough and lucky enough to go on many missions, there was a certain attitude among the RAF pilots where the siren rang. They're like, all right, oh, yeah, put the T down. Here we go. And um, <laughs> but their their physical, um, uh, the heart rates, the adrenaline it was all there, but they didn't feel they right. normally it just. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> wow. OK. Yikes. Yeah. Ugh, man. Yeah. Anyway, Next imagine. time on Biological <laughs> Studies with Theater. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I mean. Going back to the point I was making, I mean, basically, as a communal experience, sure, you're around people. Sure, you're doing the same thing. Sure, you're laughing at the same jokes and crying at the same sad moments. But it turns out there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Uh, pardon the pun. No, no, it validates that idea about it being a dialogue, right? About a back and forth. Uh, it's a dream, yes, dream. yes. Just hit me now uh, in a flash of, of mediocre thinking. You know, that explains why and we've all done it as actors and seen it as actors. We're like, oh, it's a very quiet house tonight. Or it's, yep. oh, it's a great house tonight. Each audience has its own personality. And that seems to be of uh, a piece with biologically syncing. You know, and that's kind of funny, too. Uh, I, like, I, <laughs> I have been to shows where you can tell that that dialogue is definitely one-sided. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And those actors are not picking up on anything that the audience is throwing back at them and they're just forging ahead mm. and the audience is going, just please stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe some other reasons that I've, in my research, I figured are um, uh, pros for live theater. You get to experience the unexpected. Yes. You know, I mean, we've all seen those videos. Uh, I go back and forth, uh, you know, about cell phone use and everything. Uh, I saw a great, it was a filmed podcast years ago that American Theater Wing put out where some theaters were like, hey, cell phones are here. You know, we can't, that's just where they are. And, you know, most theaters are like, just turn them off. Just turn them off. It's okay. You don't, you, you'll be fine if you don't answer that text right away. We have an intermission. You can do it then. But they would have tweet nights or something like that. Have like a special section for live tweeting or something mm. like that. I tried that a couple times and this was like in 2014, 2015 where I'd make a hashtag and I'd say, and I'd, I'd leave it out there uh, in front of the house and say, just say whatever you want. We want to hear from you, like your stuff. I mean, honestly, it can be like uh, acting's great. That dress is awful. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's direct, that's direct criticism. And we like to hear that. We might right. take your critique. We might, we'll just listen. I just want to hear it. But you know, there's those things where it's like, 
somebody might fall when they weren't supposed to, or somebody goes up on their lines and you were there. You saw yeah. Jessica Chastain forget what her name was in a doll's house. Did that happen? No, I'm just yeah. using that as an example. Because now you're jinxing her. <laughs> I saw a preview of that actually. And, uh, and she remembered her name. Oh, good. So good. yeah. Oh, now I'm jealous. Uh, He's that one performance. Yeah. That one time. Now, we kind of hinted at this earlier, though. You know, you, you said there's this dialogue that happens between the actors and the audience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the performance requires that audience interaction to make it work. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to do farce or even any form of comedy without an audience present. Yeah. So maybe, you know, and, and the classic example of this is obviously it's rare when you're at home watching a funny moment that you're actually laughing out loud. Whereas yeah. you're an audience, you do it, and it's not a conscious thing. It's involuntary. Yeah. So laughter is like the ultimate, in some ways, communal expression. Yep, absolutely. And and I actually went back and looked at it on the streaming versions of Hamilton and Come mm-hmm. From Away on Apple TV+. Plus. They were performed in front of a live audience. Yeah. So cons of live theater. And you've already talked about this a little bit, and I'd love to hear more from you on this, because I think this is why you feel new normal rep is very beneficial to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, expense. We've already talked about expense. Lordy. Yeah. I mean, and, and apart from just obviously the huge expense for the p- people to go there and the ticket prices, obviously the, the, the main thing uh, as a playwright, I'm very circumscribed in terms of, the amount of characters I can write, the amount of, you know, sets. Yes. You think of like the classic, uh, you know, so-called golden age of American playwriting. When you're looking at like Arthur Miller and uh, Kenneth Williams, you know, Street Crying Desire, Death of a Salesman. Right. There's, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's like 15, 18 characters in, in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Tennessee Williams, play, there was one actor and maybe he doubled up on other things, but his only line was to come out and sell hot dogs. At, and then one scene, he says, red hot, red hot. And then he probably goes off to the bar for an hour and a half. So you don't have that. Uh, in, in my play, Jericho, for example, which um, I had uh, several theaters, it was done regionally, but several theaters came to me and said, we'd really love to do this play. Is there any way you can cut the cast down? Yeah. One of the many reasons we chose Step 9 is because we thought, well, it's probably not really producible as a play because it's got seven characters. And that's crazy. Oh, Yeah. But I mean, uh, just to uh, describe this more for my listeners, um, this is more for markets that uh, require paid acting. Now, I mean, if you were doing if you were doing this at like a community theater where everybody's volunteer, this would be this wouldn't be a problem, except you still would have to find six costumes for these people uh, over the number of scenes that that they show up. I mean, so, okay, so there is a little bit of budgetary consideration there. But yeah, like you're saying, we've got to pay six actors to come do this show where we only have the budget for four. Yeah, at most. And and also, I mean, I and I don't know this to be true, cor- correct me, but I think that's redounded to the community theaters because, you know, the new plays don't have 20 characters anymore. I mean, yeah, you know, musicals can, but um, the new plays that people may want to do, they're four character plays. Yep. I mean, I'm... Yep. Speaking broadly, and August Osage County is a notable exception, but that was done at um, mm. you know a theater where it's uh, where there's you know a lot of it's a you know a, a, what they call subscription base uh, Steppenwolf in, in Chicago. It's this huge. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Subscription based theater. So uh, subscription base basically means that they have uh, dedicated subscribers every year, so they can build up. They have a larger budget 
and they uh, they get a lot of grants or nonprofit, so they have a lot more access. And they and so a playwright working at Steppenwolf has more a little bit more latitude. I believe there's uh, thirteen characters in August Osage County. Yeah, and, th- yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and that's yeah. stunning in today's American drama. Oh yeah, yeah. So another uh, con of live theater is its geographic scarcity in that they're generally taking place in major markets, which are usually larger cities. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are obviously exceptions. I mean, well, I mean, I was going to say like the Guthrie, but that's in Minneapolis, St. Paul. That's not a small town. <laughs> that's a no. Major, you know, no. <laughs> you know, but I mean, New York, Chicago, Washington, D.C. has some very good theater. Seattle is a great mm-hmm. theater. San Francisco. These are not small towns. No, Houston. Houston is a huge theater city too. Houston yeah. the Alley Theater is uh, is yep. great. Um, yeah, yeah. Houston's a big city. I think it's the third or fourth biggest city in the country, and mm-hmm. it's you know it's very different. And I would think like in a place like where you are in Wyoming, for example, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's or you know a lot of places in the middle of the country, finding a really high quality professional theater is it's just not tenable, and no. therefore. Therefore, no one's going to grow up with a, with a hunger for it, you know? Right. It, it's like this delicious food, a nutritious food that you've never developed a taste for because you never had a, got the chance to eat it when you were a kid. Right, right. And, you know, I think about going back. Uh, well, there are a couple things I'm thinking about with that. One, going back to Hamilton again, you know, you have this entire generation of young people who know it pretty much from the soundtrack. You know, they don't know the through line. Of, there's actually dialogue in some places between those songs. There's actually a scene that's not in the soundtrack. And I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but it is a very heartbreaking scene. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But the other thing I was thinking is, uh, you know, I did uh, an episode or two episodes with Richard Jordan on uh, the Book of Mormon and why it was so successful. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen it. And a touring company was coming through in a city about three hours away from me. And I found out where it was. And I remember going to that venue at one point about 25 years ago and going, oh, it's going to be in an arena. You know, you're going to see all the scenery hanging from the ceiling and and nothing. After it left, Jack, I found out that it was an actual 2,500 seat theater. Mm. And I would have been able to go see Book of Mormon for the first time. But nope. Nope. No. Now, now I don't get that opportunity until it comes around again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So the, the scarcity of it. Yeah. You do have a lot of people in this country. Like when I was still teaching at the college level, I was looking for places to, for students to go transfer to. And this blew my mind. This blew my mind. One of the biggest markets for incoming Broadway talent from colleges was mm. Oklahoma city university. Really? So you're like, what are they doing? <laughs> what yeah, are they trying yeah. these people in and getting right. getting people out there? So yeah. it's like, you know, even in the heartland, you have this hunger for musical theater, or maybe yeah. people just go there knowing that it's going to be a springboard to Broadway. I don't know. But right. there, is, I would suggest that there is a, a market out there for people who can't access theater as often as, as they might want to. Absolutely, and and there and if they could access theater more, that I would argue that that market is is waiting to blossom. I think we can agree that this has been quite a conversation so far, and 
absolutely more to come, because as teased, we haven't gotten to the pros and cons of streaming theater yet. Quite a topic, and quite a consideration. I'd like to thank Jack Canfora for coming on this show, and he's got plenty more to share with us in two weeks. But in the meantime, go give New Normal Rep a try. Like I've said, there are some links in the show notes to their stuff, and an exclusive link to Euripides Humanities listeners to Jack's play, Jericho. But for now, this is Aaron Odom, signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. We'll have the second part of this discussion in two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. Thank you.